The Old Covenant reading for this evening is taken from the book of the Psalms, Psalm number 3, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading through verse 8 this evening, which is the entire psalm, the word of the Lord. O Lord, how many are my foes, many are rising against me, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the Gospel according to John. John chapter 16, beginning at verse 23. We'll be reading through verse 33 this evening, which is also the end of the chapter. The word of our God. In that day, you will ask me nothing. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. And I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, Because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Here endeth the New Covenant reading. Please turn with me once again back to Psalm 3, as this will be the primary portion of God's word for our evening sermon. How do you live and pray with confidence and with peace in the midst of adversity. Interestingly enough, adversity is one of the things that drives us to prayer. 
And the other thing, at least those of us who are parents can all relate to this that drives us to prayer, is children. I think in terms of, broadly speaking, the two biggest things that induce us to pray to God are adversity and children. And that's one of the things that makes tonight's psalm so poignant for us. David is facing severe adversity from one of his own sons. Look at the superscription of the psalm with me. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. I think there are two things we ought to do with this superscription for this psalm. First, we ought to take it seriously. This is a psalm either by or about David. The Hebrew actually allows both of those readings. This is a psalm either by or about David, and it reflects on the time when David was fleeing from his son Absalom as Absalom drove David from the throne and even sought his own father's life. If that isn't motivation to cry out to the Lord in prayer, I don't know what is. But second, we should not allow taking the superscription seriously to cause us to think this is only about David, as though this is a bit of redemptive historical teaching that tells us something interesting about his life, but isn't actually applicable to our own. The way the Psalms are structured goes like this. Even when they're recounting the actual experiences that people have, they're they're given to us in a sort of generalized language intended for all of God's people to be able to sing to him and to be able to use as our own prayers. Now, thankfully, none of us is likely to be driven out of town by one of our own children, whether a son or a daughter. Certainly not having one of our children wanting to kill us. Nevertheless, we need a great deal of help in learning to live and pray with confidence and righteousness in the face of adversity. For while you may not experience this particular type of adversity, you will, in fact, experience adversity throughout your entire lifetimes. And so we need to live and pray with confidence and righteousness in the face of adversity, and we need help to learn how to do that. I would like to look at tonight's psalm under three headings. First, in this world, you will have tribulation. So pray. Second, In Christ, you can have confidence and peace, so rest. And third, salvation belongs to the Lord, so trust. Let me give those to you again. In this world, you will have tribulation, so pray. In Christ, you can have security, confidence, and peace, so rest. And salvation belongs to the Lord, So entrust yourself to him. We begin with the promise that in this world, you will have tribulation. David cries out, O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Uh, That threefold repetition of the The word many shows how desperate David's strait is. 
It gives us a sense of just how overwhelmed David is by the enormity of the threat that he was facing. It is as though he is groping to find words to express his own profound distress. Now, the initial threat is obvious. Uh, David doesn't just have enemies. David has enemies who want him dead. Yet it turns out that David faces another threat in what his enemies are saying. Now, you might be thinking, I know I've heard Pastor Booth before say, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. That's really not true. But if it was ever going to be true, surely it would be true in this circumstance. I mean, Absalom, your son, has raised an army. He's trying to kill you. Who cares what people are saying about you? But if we think like that, we miss the thrust of what is going on. We misunderstand the force of what David is experiencing. When David's enemies are saying there is no salvation for him in God, they are not a bunch of secularists saying, you know, God doesn't actually intervene or act on people's behalf. God doesn't help people. They're not saying that Yahweh can't help David. They're declaring that Yahweh will not help David because David is as guilty as sin. That, that's really the main point here. And it would have been very crushing to him, and it's a practical thing for us to learn in our own lives. David's enemies were declaring that everything that was happening to David was God's judgment upon David's sins. And what makes that so painful for David is there's more than a grain of truth in it. Uh, if you think about the situation where Absalom is now on the, th uh, well, he is in one sense on the throne, driving David out of Jerusalem, um, those things all tie back to David's multiple sins. They tie to his polygamy. They tie to his adultery with Bathsheba. Uh, they tie to the fact that when Amnon, his oldest son, rapes his half-sister Tamar, David is passive. Instead of taking up his righteous role as king and his father in this family and bringing God's judgment to bear on Amnon, he simply lets it pass. And so all these problems are stirring up. And Absalom, Tamar's sister, says, if David's not going to do anything about it, surely I will. And he invites all the sons to a, a feast, and he has Amnon put to death. And once again, David really doesn't deal with it. I mean, Absalom flees, and then Absalom's called back to Jerusalem, but Absalom is never reconciled to David. And so Absalom, tired of being on the outskirts of things, wins over the hearts of the people. He flatters them. He tells them, oh, your case would be good. If only I was a judge in Israel, I'd give you justice. And after winning over the hearts of the people, he raises an army and drives his father from the throne. As David surveys his current tragic circumstances, he could trace every one of them to his own sins. So what's he supposed to do? His enemies are saying, these tribulations have come upon you because you are guilty. And by the way, I didn't even mention another possibility that David would have been considering which is that the Lord was judging David for unnecessarily shedding the blood 
of some of Saul's descendants. You'll recall that when David's being driven out, um, people see him as being weak and powerless to some degree. They begin to mock him. In particular, one man by the name of Shimei. Shimei walked along calling down curses on David, and he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out! Get out, you man of blood! You worthless man! The Lord has avenged you on all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given your kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. Look, your evil is upon you, for you are a man of blood. Now, Jesus does promise that in this world you will have tribulation, but what do you do when that tribulation is at least in part due to your own sin? I really want you to think about that. Try answering that for yourself. What do you do when the tribulations you're experiencing really are in part, maybe to a great degree, the result of your own sin? Here's the right answer. This is the biblical answer. You confess your sin to God. You acknowledge your guilt. You don't try to push it aside and say it wasn't that big a deal and it's really all Absalom's fault anyway and he shouldn't raise his hand against the king's anointed. No, you confess your sin with the confidence that Jesus Christ has trampled your guilt into the dust. He has put it away. And therefore, your sin no longer separates you from your God. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgression from us. Beloved, please don't let your feelings of guilt keep you from prayer. Rather, you ought to take your feelings of guilt to the throne of grace in prayer on a regular basis. As we sometimes sing, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Beloved, in this world, you will have tribulation, so pray. The next two words that David utters are among the most encouraging words in the entire English language. Does David have adversaries? David has a multitude of adversaries. O oh Lord, many are my foes, many are rising against me, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Nevertheless, he prays, but you. That, that's what we have to come to in this life. We have tribulation in this world. Our circumstances will be against us. But God, God is for us. And if God is for us, no one can successfully stand against us. Our circumstances are not the most important thing about us. The most important thing about us is that in Christ, the Lord has made us whiter than snow and he has adopted us into his family. In this world, you will have tribulation. 
So pray. In Christ, you can have confidence and peace. So rest. Oh, that's easy to say, but how do you do it? How do you rest in Christ in the midst of hardship and tribulation? Part of what we need to learn to do is to preach the gospel to our own hearts. David is praying to God and he is thanking the Lord for all the ways the Lord has protected and blessed him in the past. Thanking the Lord for his previous acts of deliverance, for his previous gifts of grace in your life, is one of the most essential things for building your faith that you will have confidence of God's deliverance both in the present and again in the future. If God is for us, Nobody can successfully stand against us. Listen in as David recounts the many ways that the Lord blesses him in the present or has blessed him in the past. Verses 3 and 4. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me, from his holy hill. See, David is contrasting his wretched circumstances with the glory of his God. Now, if you're still wondering about this, let me give you a bit of an illustration. Suppose you go out on the water, enjoying a day in the ocean, and um, someone comes along in a speedboat, some really, really wicked people. And they zip along in a speedboat and they start throwing rocks at you. How do you react? I want to suggest it depends on what kind of boat you're in. If you're in a sailboat, a little tiny boat, maybe one of those sun fishing or you're standing on it, you're going to be scared, you're going to be angry. But if you're on an aircraft carrier or a battleship, you're going to look at them and laugh. David is saying God's a lot bigger than a battleship. My adversaries may be many, and compared to me, they may seem fearsome. But my shield is the living God. Nobody gets through that shield. No matter how dreadful your adversaries may seem, to you or to us, they are but dust before our Lord, who has committed himself to be a shield for his people. Now, a number of suggestions have been offered about what David is focusing on when he declares the Lord to be his glory. Now, we should keep in mind that glory in the Bible, and particularly in the Old Testament, is this idea of weightiness, something that's really significant. Well, what has just happened to David? The opposite of weightiness. Instead of being treated as God's anointed king, he is being publicly shamed, stripped of his outward glory, mocked and cursed by men who wouldn't have dared to do that just a few weeks earlier. But David is saying he has a dignity and a weightiness in his life that the world can never take away from him. What does David mean when he declares that the Lord is his glory? One attractive view is that David is being publicly shamed And at the same time as he's being driven from the throne and a nobody by the name of Shimei has been cursing him and throwing stones at him and his men, David is saying, yes, you can take away my outer shame. Human beings are shaming me. 
but God himself is my ultimate glory. And nobody can take that away from me. David then concludes by declaring that the Lord is the lifter of his head. Now to lift someone's head is not merely a psychological thing. It does include that. You know, if you think about, um, I mentioned this morning again, the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. The ordinary way of people would have prayed in the temple courts in the first century in Israel is they would have stood, they would have held their hands out, and they would have looked up to God. And we're told there that the tax collector was so distraught over his sin that he couldn't look up. He had his head hanging low. And we all experience that in our lives. You know, there are times when you're just so beat up or so ashamed, you, you can't even lift your eyes up, as it were. And God does, in fact, restore our countenance. But I want you to see this is not merely a psychological thing that the psalmist is talking about. Think back to Joseph when he gets thrown into prison. Uh, two very prominent public officials in Pharaoh's court get thrown into prison with him. The cupbearer and the breadmaker. That isn't just he just made bread. He was in charge of provisioning for Pharaoh's court. And Joseph interprets the cupbearer's dream for him, and he tells them that Pharaoh is going to lift up his head. And what that means is, is Pharaoh's going to restore him to high office once again. Right? He's going to be lifted up publicly. That's what David is saying here. David is saying, Lord, you are the lifter of my head, not some mere man. You took me from following behind sheep and made me a shepherd of your people, the king in this nation. And I want to suggest that David is saying, not merely that's something you've done in the past, as great as that is, but he's speaking with confidence that the Lord is going to restore David to the throne once again. Then in summary form, David declares, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Um, this is really simple, but it's really powerful in our lives. David is simply recalling the fact that when he prays to God, God answers him. Right? The God who spoke the universe into existence listens to his people, and he's reminding himself of the ways that he cried out for deliverance in the past, and God answered by delivering him. Uh, it reminds me of a just fantastic t-shirt that Nadia was wearing Friday night at our Bible study. It reads this, I still remember praying for the things that I now have. Isn't that good? I still remember praying for the things that I now have. Right? She was connecting, I have stuff, and I asked God, and he heard me, and he answered my prayer. By stuff, of course, we don't simply mean uh, material things. And of course, as you know, for Nadia and Gideon, they've been praying to be able to adopt children. Uh, they've adopted Wesley, and they're working really hard at finishing their second adoption, um, with Eliana being living in their home already for, not, uh, for a year and a half. Beloved, thanksgiving and gratitude are the soil in which faith grows. That, that remembering how God has blessed you in the past and giving him thanks is good. It's the right thing to do. But it's also good for you and your faith. Thanksgiving and gratitude to God are the soil 
in which faith grows. David continues, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Please mark this well. David does not experience peace from his tribulations. This account is David telling us that he experiences peace in the midst of his tribulations. See, his peace is not in the world. His peace is in his God. Now David is shifting to application. Having remembered the Lord's past act of deliverance, David is declaring, I will not be afraid, no matter how many multitudes gather against me, for they are no match for my God. I wonder if you notice the interesting development that's taking place as David proceeds to pray throughout this psalm. As David prays, his confidence grows. Let me tell you, that'll be true in your life too. As you pray, starting out with anxiety and frustration, you will discover that the anxieties and frustrations move aside, and as you focus on your God, your prayers will grow in their confidence. As David prays, his confidence grows. The opening verses focus on how numerous and how terrifying his enemies are. Keep in mind, the circumstances haven't changed. We're just a few verses later. The circumstances haven't changed, but David's attitude certainly has. As Timothy Seleska observes, surrounded by enemies, the speaker lies down and sleeps. He experiences no interruption. In the morning he wakes up, he is thinking, surely Yahweh is with me. In verse 7, with these thoughts in mind, the speaker returns briefly this time to his enemies, but only to dismiss them. His words are few, but now full of confidence. This time there is no repetition in his language, no dwelling on his hopeless situation. Instead, he commits himself to another course of action. I shall not fear myriads of people who all around take their stand against me. Myriads set all around me is in opposition to Yahweh, is a shield around me, and Yahweh supports me. For the speaker, there is no comparison. And that's the key point. As we focus on God, it doesn't make our enemies, our adversities, our hardships go away, but it puts them in the right perspective. They are no match for our God. Now, Seleska is right about that. But let me add, we frequently need to pray for a while before our own hearts begin to change. Praying until we see things clearly as they truly are, only then do we find rest for our souls. Beloved, in this world you will have tribulation, so pray. In Christ, you can have confidence and peace, so rest. And yet if we stopped here, it would be really disappointing. It would be really unsatisfying for us if this was the end of the story. Are God's people to be protected by the Lord, yet endlessly under assault, 
Or does the Lord bring resolution by conquering all of his and all of our enemies? Well, David knows the answer. And he prays that the Lord would speedily bring about that very victory. Look at verse 7 with me. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Uh, That stirring call, Arise, O Lord, actually goes back to the Exodus. If you remember when the people of God come out of Egypt and they're moving around the wilderness for 40 years, and actually when they first go into the Promised Land, the camp was arranged so that the Ark of the Covenant of God that represented God's presence in the midst of his people was in the center of the camp. And it was actually the glory cloud in the Ark that directed where they were going. The glory cloud would rise up and move, and the people would move to follow God's lead. Right? That's what was going on. But here's the critical thing I want you to remember about this. Whenever the ark set out, Moses would say, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousands of Israel. See, the Lord wasn't simply moving around. It wasn't like he was going on a scenic tour. It'd be nice to go take a look over there. What the Lord is doing is he's moving and advancing the kingdom of God by scattering Israel's enemies. That, that's the language that we have in view. Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. David is invoking that powerful image in his own life. That is, David knows that the Lord is his shield, and he is praying that the Lord would go on the offensive. He's not simply saying, keep me safe. He's saying, Lord, thank you for keeping me safe, but I want you to go on the offensive to conquer all your and all my enemies. Glorify yourself in the same way that you glorified yourself by defeating Pharaoh in ancient Egypt. The image David chooses is quite graphic. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Even today, with our various advances in technology and the horrors of modern warfare, it's a very graphic image to have the idea of someone smashing someone in the face so that all their teeth get knocked out. That's a vivid image that's being used to say, do that to your and my enemies, O Lord. Now, one of the intriguing things here is many people in the 21st century have a lot of difficulty with David praying like this. They don't like this image at all. And I have to confess to you that this doesn't bother me in the slightest. I, therefore, may not be the most helpful person if it's bothering you. I confess that the idea of God triumphing over his enemies has never troubled me in the slightest. Um, So if this is a struggle for you, I I just want to acknowledge, I may not be the most helpful person. I just don't relate to that. But I do want to suggest three things that may be helpful to some of you. First... There are those who object that what David is asking for is not something that is fitting 
for a Christian to ask God to do. I mean, isn't David asking God to take vengeance? And then we read in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus is telling us when you get slapped on one cheek, turn the other one. Right? Turn the other cheek. No vengeance. And so I have friends that will say this is not an appropriate thing for a Christian to pray. Well, I think they're plainly wrong, just to put it bluntly. It is important to realize that the Lord does not condemn vengeance. Nowhere in the Bible does the Lord ever say vengeance is bad. What the Lord says is vengeance is mine. In fact, he says more than that. He says vengeance is mine, I will repay. Right? The reason why you don't have to take vengeance into your own hand is because God is going to take care of that for all of his people. And rather than David taking vengeance into his own hands by praying to God like this, he's actually turning vengeance over to God. He's saying, Lord, you do this. And I think that's the right way to read the imprecatory Psalms. They are the opposite of taking vengeance into our own hands. It is entrusting our own vindication to the Lord who will vindicate us in his own time. Second, it's just plainly speaking a bad idea to try to be more pious than the Lord. The Holy Spirit inspired these psalms for us to pray. By the way, you will also find these in the New Testament. This isn't just in the Old Testament. In particular, you're going to find it in the book of Revelation where people who are now completely glorified before the throne of God without sin are crying out to God, How long, O Lord, until you bring vengeance upon our enemies and vindicate us? So praying the words that the Holy Spirit has given to us, which is what we're doing when we pray this psalm, and doing so in faith is always the right thing to do. Third, God's plan for salvation has always involved God triumphing over his enemies. It has a military aspect to it. Uh, when, when I talk about, in shorthand, what the gospel of Jesus Christ is, I give this definition. The gospel is the good news of the victory of God in Jesus Christ over Satan, sin, and death on behalf of his people. Uh, you might not think very much about the victory over sin and death. Those things don't seem very violent. But we should realize that the gospel is not good news for Satan. In fact, the image we're given all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 is that the serpent's going to wound Jesus on the heel and Jesus is going to crush his head. What Jesus makes abundantly plain throughout the Gospels is that those who become the seed of Satan because they are also rebelling like Satan against God are going to suffer the same fate. After all, it is Jesus Christ who says far more about hell than all the rest of the Bible combined. Judgment and destruction of God's enemies has always been part of God's plan for delivering his people. And so David is right to pray for the triumph of God over all of his and over all of our enemies. Verse 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. 
I think this is a fascinating way to end the psalm, and it's one that we should remember in our own prayer life. It would have been easy for us to be reading Psalm 3 and go, well, you know, David is, after all, the anointed king. And remember, of course, what that means for Absalom. Uh, Here's one of those things I learned in seminary. Psalm 3 comes after Psalm 2. Eight years of graduate school. It's finally starting to pay off. Well, you remember what Psalm 2 says. It talks about uh, the, the princes of this world who are rebelling against God and trying to throw off the yoke. And they're attacking the Lord and his anointed. The Lord sits enthroned in heaven and he laughs at them. We have to remember that's what Absalom is doing here. He has raised his hand against God's anointed king. He's rebelling against God and against God's anointed king, David. But David doesn't stop there. David doesn't simply say, Lord, vindicate me and vindicate yourself. Rather, he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. David was God's anointed king. And his desire was that God would give this salvation to everyone who calls upon his name and that all of God's people would be blessed. Beloved, that's a good thing when you're praying, particularly when you're praying in your own tribulations. It is right to pray for yourself. That's not a bad thing to do. But at some point in your prayer, you ought to look around and say, I have brothers and sisters all over the world who need blessing and deliverance as well. Let me extend what I'm praying for myself to them. And interestingly enough, if you think about the Lord's Prayer, you'll notice that the Lord's Prayer is given to us that way. We aren't told simply, forgive me my debts, but forgive us our debts. Right? Give us this day our daily bread. We are part of a broader people, the family of God, and therefore we ought not to get so narrowed down that we only pray for ourselves. So there you have it. In this world, you will have tribulation, so pray. In Christ, you can have confidence and peace, so rest. And salvation belongs to the Lord, so entrust yourself to him. Beloved, let us do this with great confidence. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen.